Welcome to episode 425 of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dr. James Sprague on the topic of durability. This was the main topic of James' PhD, so he is the perfect guest to discuss the latest scientific findings on this topic, which, as it is a pretty new research topic, is something that is moving along quite quickly. So it was really interesting to get an update on on everything that's happened, and of course, uh, some of these findings come directly from uh, from James's research. But before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration. Precision Fuel and Hydration help athletes personalize their hydration and fueling strategies for training and racing. You can use the free Fuel and Hydration Planner to get a personalized plan for your carbohydrate, sodium, and fluid intake in your next event. And if you want even more help, why not book a free 20-minute video call station to chat for your plan with the athlete support team. As a TTS listener, you get 15% off your first order by using the code TTS24 on precisionfuelandhydration.com. And thank you to Zenate. The Zenate Indoor Swim Trainer allows you to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency. You can target specific aspects of your stroke, like your catch and pull through, and you can work on technique or power. The design of the bench forces you to constantly work on core activation, which can help your body position in the water. And most importantly, you can stay consistent in your training even when you don't have time to go to the pool. Try the Zenate risk-free for 30 days and get 20% off your first order on zenatesintrain.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, here's the interview with James Prague. Welcome back to That Triathlon Show, James. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Thank you very much for having me back. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to have you back. Uh, it's been a little while. I actually don't remember off the top of my head what episode the last one was or what year it was, but uh, there are plenty of new listeners regardless. So let's start with a reintroduction of yourself to the audience. Okay, yeah, I think my two appearances on the podcast have bookended my my PhD, basically. Um, so um, my name's James Sprague. I have a PhD now in exercise science uh, from the University of Cape Town, uh, specialising in durability. So that's what I looked at during my um, during my PhD studies. Um, I work for Tudor Pro Cycling, so I work as a coach and I guess kind of performance scientist as well alongside that role. And then I also work for um, a company that I have with, with some colleagues who've also been on the podcast, um, Intercept Performance Consultancy, uh, and we work across a wide range of sports providing performance consultancy, essentially. And Tudor Pro Cycling, what what level uh, do they race at? So we are a pro team. So there's three levels of professional uh, cycling. We're in the middle tier. Um, it's a very new team, so you can't go straight in at the top tier. You have to You have to qualify for the top tier by scoring points. And um, so we're in that middle tier at the moment, but with all right conditions, I would say. Cool, yeah. So uh, as you said, durability uh, was the main topic of your PhD. So that's uh, something that we will discuss in depth here. Uh, I thought that maybe it's good to start with some some definitions. Uh, so some yes. First of all, how would you define durability? Durability is the difference in performance capacity from the start to the end of uh, a single session, if you like. So it's essentially what can you do when you're tired compared to what can you do when you're fresh is the easiest way to describe it. Yeah. And uh, you measure that in some of your papers, at least in, in various ways it can be. But but one of the ways that you measure it is uh, with the change in mean max powers, I guess, but also critical power uh, kind of. Can you, can you, you, will, you can explain more clearly how, how it is measured and, and the, the additional terms that we might need to be familiar with to understand the research that you've done? Yeah, sure. So I, I guess the good 
Point to start is the power duration relationship. So that's the power output you can produce for certain periods of time. If you plot all those durations and all those powers on a, on a curve, you get, I'm sorry, on a graph, you get a nice power duration curve. And what we're looking for are changes in that curve over time. So one of the terms you'll probably hear me say on in, in this kind of podcast is the downward shift. So that's a, a shift of that power duration relationship downwards. So essentially now, instead of being able to produce, so for example, 400 watts for 10 minutes, you can do 380 watts for 10 minutes. So it's the whole curve has shifted downwards. Now, depending on the setting, how you measure performance changes. So sometimes you can do formal uh, performance tests. Um, and in those cases, you can test for things like critical power, so that maximal aerobic sustainable power. You can test for W prime, that uh, ability to produce power above critical power, or the fixed work capacity that you can you can produce above critical power. Maximum sprint power, which obviously kind of speaks for itself. So in formal testing environments, you can get those sort of values plus you know what athletes can do for three minutes or twelve minutes or five minutes or whatever durations you test. In uh, more applied settings and real world settings obviously you can't get your athletes to do you know a test at the end of a race during a race um, and in those circumstances we use what's called mmp values so mean maximal power output values so that's essentially the highest average power for a continuous duration of time so for example what is the highest average power across a five minute continuous period of time in a race or a 10 minute or you can use whatever durations you want so in when we're taking data from races, we typically use MMP values. When we're taking data from formal testing values, we will take the testing values and then derive the critical power and the W prime from, from those tests. Yeah, great, great explanation. So uh, one of the studies that you, uh, that you did was uh, the relationship between training characteristics and durability in professional cyclists across a competitive season. So do you want to start with, with this one and give a bit of an overview of uh, what you did and what you found? Yeah, I think so just taking one step back from that. So when, we, when I came into my PhD, the research that myself had been involved in, some colleagues and some other groups had kind of shown that, okay, durability is important. So we knew that durability was a component of performance. So it wasn't just fresh values that counted. They weren't very predictive of, of actual race performances, but we knew durability was. And so the first question we had in my PhD was, okay, is it trainable? So can we get better at it? And is it fixed throughout a season? So if it was a fixed component, we actually wouldn't need to do much study in it because we'd know, okay, everyone after two and a half thousand kilojoules of work can do 97% or, you know, there's no individual variability or there's no individual variability across the season. So that was the first thing we wanted to answer. We wanted to see, okay, is it fixed across the season? And actually it's not. So what we saw in the study was that the fresh power profile was very similar across an entire season. So there was very small, only very small changes across an entire season in, you know, maximal fresh values. However, there was far more variability in the power outputs in the fatigue state. So actually, sometimes when athletes thought they were in good form, it was more that actually, you know, their fresh numbers hadn't changed, but their fatigue numbers were much better. And that's what they were describing as form, because obviously that was having a bigger effect on their on their um, kind of performances in race. So we were the first kind of people to show that actually, okay, this concept durability does change throughout the season. And if it changes throughout a season, then obviously it must be trainable, right? Because we train throughout a season. So we wanted to understand how it was trainable. And what we did is we we broke this, we, we took a whole group of under 23 athletes 
And we broke their season down into three chunks, so early, mid, and late. And now for each of these athletes, each of these periods had a goal event. So we knew that at some point they were trying to be in the best form possible during each of those three periods. We then looked at, we had performance testing in these three periods as well. So we looked at, okay, the performance testing, and that showed that, okay, that the, the kind of the, the fresh level isn't changing too much in the performance tests. And then what we did is we looked at the power outputs they were producing at the end of races. So we used after two and a half thousand kilojoules. And we said, okay, we'll take MMP values, those power outputs from races after two and a half thousand kilojoules, and we'll see, okay, what are they doing at the end of races, you know, compared to what they can do in a fresh state. And what we actually saw is towards the end of the season, a big drop in what athletes were able to do in a fatigue state compared to a fresh state. So early season, they were relatively close. In the middle part of the season, actually, the two kind of narrowed even again, and the, the athletes became more durable. Uh, not statistically, but actually, you know, the, the numbers were closer. And at the end of the season, those two values from fresh and fatigued diverged again. Um, so we saw this change in the durability, fatigue power outputs, but not in the fresh power outputs across the season. And what were your conclusions from from that, or any are there any implications of these findings that you could then potentially use in in coaching, in consultations with athletes and, and with other coaches? Yeah, sure. So what we also did alongside is just just looking at the power outputs. We we looked at the training that the athletes did in those periods, and then what we did is we looked at correlations between the change in training from one period to the next and the change in durability from one period to the next. And what we found is that essentially training load is really important. So overall training load. If you reduce your overall training load, you're likely to become less durable. So you can almost, and what we found is a lot of athletes at the end of the season almost switched to like a minimal effective dose of training because you know they were getting a bit tired toward the end of the season to maintain their fresh power profile. But when they did that, obviously their overall training load reduced, they did less volume, and therefore their durability really suffered. So we saw that overall training load is really important. Volume of training, because obviously in endurance sports that forms a lot of the training load, is also really important. And what we found is that there's two ways essentially you can maintain your durability. You can increase, you can maintain your volume, or you can decrease your volume a little bit, and you can in, in, uh, kind of increase the amount of sort of gray zone training that you do. So that heavy intensity, sweet spot training, whatever you're going to call it, you can kind of compensate a little bit by doing a little bit more of that and keep your overall training load pretty much the same, even if you drop the volume a little bit. However, in the athletes that improve their durability, basically they increase their volume and went slightly more polarized in their training. So mm -hmm. if you want to, you can maintain by doing more heavy intensity work, kind of sweet spot, gray zone, whatever you're going to call it, and reduce your volume a little bit. Or you can improve your durability, and to do that, you need to kind of polarize your training a little bit by increasing the volume. Right, yeah. Uh, it's. Uh, I remember having this discussion with your colleague, Peter Leo, who was also involved in, in some of these studies. Yeah. And uh, and I think one of, the, one of the studies that he was the main author for was based on this similar data but with uh with some slightly different research questions that you were in investigating uh but but i had this discussion with him where i asked the question uh that when when you do have cyclists coming to the end of the season and they are tired uh is it is it because 
because of the maybe distributing the training not optimally throughout the year or maybe maybe it's just in, in, an inevitability with all of the racing that they do all of the race days making it hard to to have the freshness basically what i'm what i'm asking is when when you have there is a reason that they're dropping their volume as you say they feel tired is it is it feasible when you do get to that point and you feel tired to force yourself to increase volume or maintain volume or uh, or, or is it more that you need to adjust the what you did before earlier in the season in the year whether it's training or racing to be able to do that later in the season i would say there's there's a there's an awful lot of kind of psychological fatigue across the season so especially in professional cycling the guys do a lot of days away from home they do a lot of um travel days you know it's a lot of time in airports there's all that side of things as well and i think that takes a a kind of a, a mental toll across the season as well and what we see is in the athletes that you know if you're so Tour de Lombardia is, you know, Giro de Lombardia is right at the end of the season. You know, in the guys that that's a real goal for, don't really have problem maintaining that volume towards the end of the season because they're still focused, they're still motivated for that for that goal. And probably, yes, you have adjusted the training load throughout the season a little bit to to build, you know, in for that, if that makes sense. Um, so it's probably, I think, the, the thing with fatigue is it's always so complex. Like, you can't pin it down to one... Uh, variable do you know what i mean you have mental fatigue you have cognitive fatigue you have physical fatigue you have you know and that can be sp- split up into into a multitude of of different components itself um and that's what makes it so fascinating but it also makes it very hard to pin down exactly why athletes are slowing down or not able to train as much or, or whatever yeah yeah no that that makes total sense and uh, perhaps even the the knowledge now these findings can help provide an additional point of motivation for for athletes that okay that there seems to be this this link between maintaining or even increase maintaining training load increasing training volume and 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 in that way maintaining or increasing the durability which will help race performance so maybe just the knowledge that that is going to be beneficial can make you feel feel good about doing the training even in those last last few months of the season yeah definitely and i don't also think that seasons shouldn't be seen kind of um you know in isolation like you're also setting yourself up for the next season right so if you've lost a load of durability towards the back end of one season that's a load of work that you need to do at this front end of, of the next season in order to bring that back to get up to the level to you know to be competitive in the early in the early season races so I think there's also you have to consider it in terms of like a season to season performance metric as as well, and I think that's why we see in cycling, you know, guys that in male cycling guys that finish the Vuelta, for example, really strong, big volume, big intensity load at the end of the season, finish that, go to a few more races, then take a good break, then they're already going well coming into the next season. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Is there anything else from this particular study that you want to highlight, or should we move on to the next one? I think what I would say is, you know, the, these are just general directions to follow for coaches in terms of their training prescription. Like, you know, we know that, okay, if you can increase volume, then likelihood is that's the way to increase durability. But obviously, there's an individual response at the same time. So you just, it, you know, it tells you a direction you can maybe go with with an athlete, but it doesn't tell you how much, to, you know, to increase the, the duration by or the volume by. Um, and obviously if that's making an athlete tired, then obviously you're also going to see a drop in performance. So it's, 
the idea with this study was just to get a, a good idea of, okay, in which direction does training need to go? You know, do we need to intensify training or do we need to increase volume? What do we need to do in order to improve durability? And then obviously that has to be applied at like an individual level. And that's obviously the skill of an individual coach to, to be able to do that. Yeah. The next uh, study that, that I wanted to ask about uh, is uh, the relationship between physiological characteristics and durability in male professional cyclists. So there you took the uh, cyclists into the lab and uh, investigated a bunch of physiological markers and, and variables and how they uh, correlated with durability. So can you discuss that in some more detail? Yeah, sure. This is my favorite study for my PhD, so I can talk about this one. I like this one. Um So what we did is we, we wanted to understand the physiology. So, okay, we know it's we know it's trainable. We know durability is trainable. So there must be something going on at a physiological level, right? That's, we're seeing differences in or we're, we're moving a needle in, in, in some components. And that's, you know, given us increased durability. So what are the things, you know, where are we moving the needle was the next question we had. So what we did is we got athletes to do uh, kind of a, an extended lab test protocol. So we did a, you know, a normal kind of ramp test as you would do. Um, and we would all, we also did some steady state stuff uh, in the moderate and heavy exercise intensity domains, looking at exercise efficiency and, and looking at um, substrate utilization as well. We then got the athletes to do a fresh critical power test, so a power profile test as we call it. So that's looking at their peak power. Looking at we do then do a three and a twelve minute test, and from that we can derive our, our critical power and our W prime values. And then we did a fatiguing protocol, and then we got them to do the same uh, critical power. Um, kind of the same test to to derive the critical power values again and then we looked at correlation so we looked at you know what we're we seeing in the lab and, and those traditional lab measures and what correlates nicely to those athletes that are more durable we split that up and this is where it gets a little bit confusing because other other studies have tried to do similar and not found the same results as us and i'll maybe get into why i think that is so what we found was that critical power durability so that ability to maintain maximal kind of aerobic sustainable power output correlates pretty well with everything so any basic measure that you will take in a, a typical lab test if you improve that you'll likely see an, an improvement in durability of critical power okay w prime doesn't really correlate with much at all So the athletes that were more durable in, in terms of W prime, the only thing that correlated there was um, substrate utilization. So those that used less um, carbohydrates in the heavy exercise intensity domain, they maintained their W prime a little bit better than the others. So it seems for the W prime, okay, you need to be able to spar glycogen essentially when when going pretty hard and that's important because we know glycogen is important for those high intensity efforts that kind of you know logically makes sense. For critical power, basically, like just get fitter <laughs> is very simple way of of kind of putting it. And actually, if we look at um, relative VO2 max, uh, LT1, so the, that where that first threshold falls, and substrate utilization, we can actually get a very good prediction of of, of durability uh, for critical power. So we can predict, you know, ninety eight percent of the variance in in kind of critical power or the drop in critical power. Um, just with those three measures alone. Now, other studies have tried to do similar. And so they've looked at performance in a fresh and a fatigue state and the difference and then correlated that back to lab metrics. And they found no correlations. And I think the reason for that is some of the studies didn't control the fatiguing 
uh, element of the of the protocol particularly well. So it was done kind of in the field a little bit and loose, if you like. So I think some athletes had had kind of more fatigue than others coming into their second test. And also they used a single performance metric. So some of the one of the papers, for example, used a 20-minute test. Now, obviously, for a 20-minute test, we understand that that's, that's a product of both critical power and W prime. And we know there's only one component that, you know, that we found that that correlates to W prime or changes in W prime. That substrate utilization wasn't measured in their particular study. So I think this is where there's some confusion in the literature at the moment, but I just think don't think some of the studies have controlled enough um, for some of their components. Um, and that's why they found different than we have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with the, the the maintenance of uh, or the durability of of W prime, I should say, and the the correlation with uh, glycogen sparing, uh, so substrate utilization, uh, and uh, is is that? Do you think are are the athletes that are better able to maintain a W prime also the ones that might have a lower W prime to begin with, uh, or or is that did you, did you look? No, into we, that? Didn't, we didn't see any correlations there. So we saw no correlations to critical power or W prime values in a fresh state to to durability. So that was quite mm. interesting. So it's not like if you, I say everything kind of you know if you just get fitter, but actually if you just improve your critical power, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to become more durable. It's more those basic aerobic um, measures like VO two max where that first threshold is, exercise economy, substrate utilization, those kind of more basic values that actually seem to correlate with with durability rather than, you know, just what you can do in a fresh state. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, it, and it is interesting. I, I This is not probably not scientifically correct to do this, but I just put down all the variables in a list ranked by how strong the the correlation was the the r square value and and vo2 max was the one that was had the the strongest yeah. correlation uh so so that is quite interesting because it's not something that you would intuitively think that uh, a high vo2 max is so strongly correlated to to durability that the vo2 max is kind of seen conventionally as something that is more well reflective of what you can do over a short duration of very high intensity but not necessarily what you can do in the fourth hour of a cycling race uh for example but but it is very interesting to see the, the link between all of those basic aerobic variables and uh, and efficiency variables as well and durability yeah definitely and i think when you think about it you know the three that came out when we did the the multiple linear regression vot max tells you about you know how big the aerobic engine is yep uh, the substrate utilization tells you about, you know, how well that uh, engine burns fuel and how well it saves the fuel that you need for those high intensity efforts again. And then the exercise economy tells you about, you know, how efficient that engine is. So it, it kind of makes sense when you look at the three that came together to give us durability, it kind of assesses all three sides of, you know, of, of what, of how efficiently you basically turn oxygen intake into, you know, power at the pedal. Yeah. And uh, one more question about the, the protocol you used for uh, for fatiguing the the cyclist was this one of the studies where you used the the interval protocol with I think it was something like eight minute intervals at one hundred five to one hundred ten percent of critical power. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so um, fatiguing protocols are tricky to come up with in in scientific studies. The reason being is that you need something that is hard enough that it you know separates out the athletes so some are still durable some are you know getting fatigued it can't be too hard that it puts everyone on the knees because then you know you you just get rubbish data at the other end it needs to be relatively um 
ecologically valid. Do you know what I mean? Like it needs to look something like a, a bike race or something like whatever you're trying to test. And athletes have to want to do it multiple times. So you obviously you do a familiarization, then you do it again in the testing, whatever else. So trying to find something that, that hits all those four boxes can, can be a bit tricky and it took quite a bit of trial and error. Um, and w- interestingly, when we first tried this, the, the five by eight um, session, we ran the numbers. We did you know a small trial study with some athletes and uh, the numbers were complete garbage. Like we, we, we saw exactly the opposite of what we expected to see. So we saw the athletes that we expected to be more durable were actually less durable according to the test, and the athletes that were more durable actually were, the, were what we thought were the, the weaker athletes. Uh, and we couldn't quite understand what was going on. And then we dug into the data a little bit, and we saw that the athletes that had basically undercooked all the intervals, so they'd done them just under critical power rather than just over critical power, came out really strong in the test at the end. Some of the athletes had overcooked a little bit, and actually, they'd really pushed in each of the five minutes, sorry, each of the eight minutes, and then they'd really suffered in the test at the end. And so we had to be really careful about having this control of 105 to 110% and making sure all the efforts were within that to control the fatiguing kind of element of the, of the protocol. Otherwise, the numbers that you got out, the in, kind of the inter-individual variability in the level of fatigue induced was, was too great. So you have to be quite tight with your controls in terms of like when you're inducing fatigue. To, to kind of get some to get some useful data at the other end yeah yeah and uh, we'll, we'll get to the impact of uh, this kind of intermittent high intensity protocol versus just grinding out steady power uh in in the next the next study but just a couple of follow-ups still on this one uh so first of all everything that that improves your fitness in the in the lab physiologically might be might then be correlated to to durability based on based on this so is it as simple as um, get fitter and get better durability at the same time or or are there any other conclusions or uh, yeah conclusions that you would draw from this study or or how would you how would you summarize it I think in broad terms, yes, to be honest. And actually, if you look at the first two studies that we spoke about, that it makes sense in terms of, you know, the training and the response that you would expect to that and then an increase in durability. So if you were going to, you know, if your goal as a coach was to increase someone's exercise economy and to improve someone's substrate utilization in terms of using less carbohydrates at higher intensities, your go-to to cover those two bases would probably be volume, right? Mm. And actually, that's what we saw in the first study. We saw that increasing that volume also increases kind of, you know, your durability. And then in the lab study, we saw that, okay, the metrics that you've probably moved the needle on by doing increased volume are also the ones that correlate nicely to to durability. So I think that was quite nice about the studies, these two studies that they, you know, kind of uh, gave us the same answer by asking different questions, which which normally tells you, you know, you're on on sort of the, the right track. Um, but I think we see that, you know, those athletes with years and years of just good aerobic, well-controlled training behind them are typically the most, you know, durable athletes. And we see it in cycling with, um, with juniors, for example. So juniors nowadays are coming in with, you know, crazy numbers, but they can't do them in a fatigue state because they just haven't got those years and years and years of, you know, training volume behind them and they haven't, you know, developed that that kind of element of their physiology at the moment but if you test their vo2 max or you test their you know five minute power output it's absolutely huge but can they do that in a fatigue state not not so much mm. 
Yeah. And uh, are there any other practical uh, implications of this study? For for example, one thing that comes to mind is, would you would would you have athletes go into the lab and use that data to, for example, run it through the regression equations that you came up with to get an, an estimate of predicted durability? Or, or would you rather just actually do a test for durability itself, if it's something that you test for at all, or rather than just seeing how they do in races? Yeah, it depends on it. I think what one thing I learned is that, you know, from your typical step or ram test, you, you don't get everything. So we had to have those longer. So we had after the, the kind of the, the ram protocol, we had six minute stages, one in the moderate and one in the heavy exercise intensity domain, just to, to pull out some of those economy and substrate utilization values. So I would say in any sort of lab environment, those are a, definitely a win in terms of the data you get back from them. So I'd, I'd, even myself now, if I have athletes go to the lab, I add those those in at the end. You know, it takes an extra twenty minutes, and but you get a lot more valuable data from it. Um, I do know that in some uh, institutional settings where they have limited access to athletes, they are doing exactly that. So they've added those, you know, those steady state stuff at the end, and then they are kind of giving the athletes a a prediction of their durability as well and using that to um you know in their kind of in their metrics so it is being used in the field with, with national federations um which is which is nice to see um so it's you know it's, it's just another tool that we have in our toolbox basically you know if you can test someone outside then probably just go out and test the exact thing that you want to test but if you don't have access to to be able to do that for whatever reason you know busy race programs or only limited access to testing with athletes or whatever else then then it's a nice way to to get an idea of durability from you know an extra 20 minutes in the lab which is which is not so much yeah yeah uh any other takeaways from this one or shall we move on to to the next study one's covered all right so uh the next one uh is a study where you investigated the impact of uh, the intensity of the work done before in a fatiguing protocol essentially and how that impacts the the downward shift uh as you as you talked about how how much power loss you see uh, in in that fatigued state. So, give us an overview of of that study. Yeah. So, obviously, not all bike races look the same. So, some are very intense, some are very easy. Actually, relatively speaking, for a professional cyclists, you know, that's that's obviously linked to the to the topology and the terrain and things that it that covers. And also, we learned from from the pilot testing that I spoke about earlier that you know, if you don't control well for intensity in terms of your fatiguing protocols you get very different results out. So once we knew kind of, okay, durability is important. This is how we train it. This is the physiology around it. We thought, okay, well, let's look at, you know, are there inter- individual differences in how people respond to intensity? So so what we did is we used the same um, fatiguing protocol. So our, our five by eights, 105 to 110% of CP. And, but we also matched that, or actually they did slightly more work at a moderate intensity, so less than 70% of, of critical power. And we know from kind of internal data that that's, that will be in the moderate intensity domain. And then we got them to do, obviously, a, a critical power or power profile test in a fresh state, and then one after each of these fatiguing protocols, and then we looked at the differences. So we actually included peak power in this one as well, so f- or 15-second power. 15-second power, critical power, and W prime. And we looked at what changed, um, you know, after a high intensity session and what changed after a moderate intensity session yeah just just a reminder for the listeners here moderate intensity the moderate intensity domain uh, is below your 
first threshold below your LT1 or VT1. So so meaning it's it's easy endurance riding essentially. Um, so so yeah, uh, what uh, what were the findings? So we found even though for some yeah for methodological reasons they ended up doing a little bit more actual total work uh, in the moderate um, condition. We saw much bigger changes after the high intensity work, which is what you'd kind of expect, but but no one had kind of shown it uh, in a paper from this at this point. So, what we found is that sprint power typically suffered more after um, the high intensity work. Three minute power also um, looks like it, it's affected more, but actually there's longer power outputs or durations so your 12 minutes and your critical power probably doesn't make too much of a difference where the where the kind of the work is accumulated for those longer durations so it seems that high intensity work hits harder on your ability to then do in high intensity work afterwards at a group level i would say Mm. do you have any theories for why that might be um i think uh Glycogen depletion will be will be one of them, especially around you know the sort of we saw a big decrease in W prime after the um, the high intensity session, but not after the moderate. So I think glycogen depletion, probably some neuromuscular stuff as well. So I think going above critical power will induce uh, obviously some some changes within the muscles, some metabolites that give a negative feedback loop to your body in terms of been able to uh, produce subsequent power outputs. Um, so I think it's just. A case of yeah, there's there's more going on when you ride above critical power and and things get you know there's a lot more fatigue inducing metabolites that get produced and then that that uh, negatively affects your ability to produce power afterwards. Yeah, yeah, and it makes makes sense that with the longer obviously if it, with with the as you said W prime being more affected, then that has a much bigger impact on those shorter durations like a three minute effort or a five minute effort compared to a 10 or 20 minute effort even though it does have an impact on those durations um so one follow-up question i had on this one is actually uh why did you choose to use the moderate intensity domain uh to compare uh and against high intensity why not the heavy intensity domain or is that, is that something you have thought about doing in the future or as future work? Um, yeah, we use the moderate just because as a to be as far away from the severe as possible, essentially, mm. to really separate that out and say, okay, like moderate. We And we didn't have the time to do moderate, heavy and severe with, with the athletes that we had. So that would have been mm-hmm. a perfect way to do that study. But unfortunately, we just didn't have the time with it was done in professional cyclists and we only had so many days between, you know, on training camps and whatever else. So that's why we chose to do the moderate. I think... Um, from the data, kind of the unpublished data from my PhD, I think it looks like heavy is just like a uh, a slight increase on moderate, if that makes sense. So mm. going back to that kind of line of data I said about the testing and how it kind of all went wrong to start with, actually those athletes that stayed in the heavy exercise intensity domain during those efforts, even though they shouldn't have, we didn't see much fatigue in those athletes. So I think heavy is um yeah basically an intermediate step between between the two but i think it looks a lot more like moderate than it does like severe exercise intensity domain what you might see at that point is increased glycogen depletion so it i would theorize that hypothesize that it would hurt your w prime quite a lot as well potentially the heavy exercise intensity domain especially if it was for for a prolonged period now 
what I would say is all these findings are at a group level. So there's obviously also on top of that big inter-individual differences. And actually some athletes didn't matter what you threw at them. So we categorized those athletes as fatigue resistant, we called them. Um, and essentially after both the moderate and the high intensity work, their power profile just didn't change. Pretty much the same power outputs. Then we had some athletes that we classified as semi-fatigable, which is that after the high intensity work, we did see a change in their power profile, but after the moderate, we didn't. And then we had some athletes that we categorized as fatigable and basically we saw a similar change in their power profile, both after the moderate and after the, the high intensity work. So there's inter individual differences there, obviously also in, you know, in the response to intensity. And were there any patterns uh, for which, uh, which types of cyclists, for example, might be fatigue resistant versus fatigable uh, or any, anything that you could, you could see or, or yeah, was it more random? Um, no, there wasn't any patterns in this data. I know kind of other colleagues have shown that basically, um, it, an athlete's ability to hold a certain portion of their power duration relationship is, is related to their speciality. So for example, sprinters seem, or better sprinters are able to hold their power, their sprint power outputs better than, than less good sprinters, if you like. But actually we don't see a big change in, you know, big difference in, for example, longer power outputs, like 20 minute power outputs. And it's probably a bit the, the inverse for climbers. What we did see in this study was that if an athlete was able to maintain their 15 second power output after high intensity work, then they were durable across the board. Now I don't know if that that was maybe just in the cohort that we had, but that's what we saw in the you know in the athletes that we had. I don't know how well that expands to other athletes, but pretty much if you can maintain your sprint power after high intensity work, it's likely that your three minute your W prime will also you know be less affected by high intensity work, and then also we don't see a, a big difference in the in the longer durations anyway. So if you want to use a good a uh, quick way of seeing if an athlete may be durable or not, maybe do some sprint testing, then maybe do some high intensity work with them, then do some sprint testing afterwards. And that might give you a good idea quickly. Won't be perfect, but it will get, you know, it, it saves going through the entire kind of rigmarole of controlling and doing it twice and that sort of stuff. Yeah, no, that that's really interesting. And uh, I think that one one thing that, that I want to highlight from from this work is that I think in in the last I don't know, decade or so when people have been talking about uh, durability or it has also been called fatigue resistance, especially in people familiar with WKO will have seen those fatigue resistance charts with uh, the power duration curve after uh, 2000 kilojoules, for example. So, so, and, and that's, that's the way that it was from, from my understanding, at least initially conceptualized that how, how much can you, yeah, how, how much power can you produce? after a certain amount of work and how how little do you lose after a certain amount of work but what you have showed here is that it's not just the amount of work done but it's that how the work is is done that that also matters and and impacts this so that, that this is important to to keep in mind and uh, and obviously maybe for triathletes if you're going to race long distance triathlon and you're always going to be in the moderate or maybe heavy domain then probably 
work done is a really good proxy that you can use but for for a discipline like cycling or for short distance triathlon then uh, yeah you have to take into account how is the how is the work done what intense domain are you working yeah definitely so yeah as you say it has always been just quantified in terms of absolute number of kilojoules or normalized to body mass so like 40 50 kilojoules per kilo um but yeah that doesn't seem to be enough so we do need some kind of intensity metric in there as well yeah any other takeaways from from this study in particular? No, I don't think so. I, I think again, it, you know, just kind of what what I was quite happy with about my PhD is that all the all the findings pointed in the same direction. Do you know what I mean? Like we we know that okay, it would also make sense that if you know glycogen depletion is important, the guys that do heavy sorry intensity that's going to hit your glycogen stores a bit more, which means you know you're likely going to see a change in W prime, etc. So it just kind of meshed in nicely also with with what we find in all the other studies which was which was nice to see yeah uh, and uh then some general follow-up questions on on all of this is uh can you speculate about how these findings these results might apply or potentially be different in in a cohort of amateur cyclists because all of your work was in uh professional or under 23 cyclists so athletes of a very high level yeah, so I think what you can do is, uh, like, all, I, as you say, all our work was done in, you know, kind of continental level cycling, so that third tier of professional professional cycling, actually some some second tier athletes as well. Um, if you go then to world-class cyclists, basically you just have to ramp everything up. So the, the total amount of work to induce the same amount of downward shift in the power duration relationship needs to be more. So, you know, rather than looking at two and a half thousand kilojoules, you probably need to be looking at three and a half thousand kilojoules before you start seeing these differences. And with amateur cyclists, it just goes either way. So you might be looking at, you know, um, 1,500 or 2,000 kilojoules before you start seeing, you know, differences depending on the level of that athlete. So I think, you know, you will still see this downward shift. It might just happen quicker and it might just happen to a greater, greater degree in amateur cyclists, depending on their, obviously, their level of, of performance. Yeah. And uh, the other general follow-up question, you already mentioned one aspect of this, how do you improve durability and uh, volume <laughs> came up, uh, which is not surprising. Uh, are there any other things that you, whether whether it's from these studies or from just reading other people's work or experimenting in the field as a coach, do you have any any thoughts on how to work on durability? How, how can you improve it? Yeah, so fueling is a big one um that we did we didn't look at at all deliberately in my in my phd so throughout all my phd work we basically fueled everyone pretty highly so uh, we used 90 grams of carbohydrates kind of one to 0.8 glucose fructose ratio so we really fueled them as if it was as if it was racing um but if you're not fueling then obviously you're going to see greater glycogen depletion you know you're not going to provide nozzles with with as much uh, fuel source and that's going to impact your ability for sure and that's i think why we see now in especially in professional cycling like really high carbohydrate intakes um so i think fuelings is a big one um and then i think on top of that just good controlled sensible training do you know what i mean like i, I think you know when athletes are in good form and they feel fresh but they also feel fit is when you're going to see the most durable athletes it's you know just get your tra- just do the basics really well in terms of your training make sure there's enough volume in there if you do need to improve durability kind of lean on the volume side of things but don't overdo it in any area and i think then then you know you'll you'll get your most durable well-performing athletes 
I think we should not also forget about the fresh values, right? Because the fresh values set the ceiling. You're never going to do more in a fatigue state than you are in a, in a fresh state. And so, you know, they also have to be considered in terms of like, they need to be high enough and then you need to be able to match them in a fatigue state. Yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts? Uh, there is one thing that has been talked about and used is doing doing efforts in a fatigued state in training and uh yeah that that always I, I'm, I'm not sure i'm not sure about my my own thoughts about that personally to be honest but uh i i guess i'm leaning more towards the side that that will kind of just it would be a demonstration of your durability but i'm not i'm not convinced that it will improve your durability to just do efforts when you're fatigued in training not that it's necessarily worse than doing it when fresh but but what do you have any thoughts uh on uh on on that is that something that you use a lot i don't use it as a way to move durability if, if that's what i'm trying to improve with an athlete yeah. in, in that case i kind of lean on the volume and then keep the you know kind of separate it out and keep that high intensity sessions high intensity focused and then and then the 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 longer sessions endurance focused i think where it can be good is to is like a confidence booster for athletes so if they see coming into an important race block that you know they're able to suddenly do better numbers in a fatigue state i think that's really good for their confidence and then that can you know obviously help them in races as well um but i wouldn't use it as a tool per se to to try and improve durability i would kind of separate those things out and just you know like i say basic good training that we've you know we've actually done for years like this is this is the whole thing with durability right nothing's new under the sun kind of you know it, this has all been done oh you know people are, have always been aware that you need to be good at the end of a race as well as at the beginning of a race hmm. i think where the difference nowadays is that we've kind of just studied it a bit more systematically and we understand it a bit better but it's not like it's you know it's not like coaches 50 years ago weren't weren't thinking about how good their athletes were at the end of you know at the end of races as well yeah so uh, then uh, there is one more study that I want to touch on, which is a bit different, not related specifically to durability. Uh, that is a, a viewpoint that you wrote with some colleagues regarding um, in the scientific literature using VO2 max as a marker of the the level of the athletes and uh, and how that's potentially not uh, the best, most optimal marker to use, and maybe replacing it with something like critical power or critical speed. So, can you can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. So this is us kind of kicking the hornet's nest a little bit of exercise physiology over the last forty, fifty years or whatever. So we always classify athletes by VO two max. So basically, whenever you do an intervention study, you know you get them in the lab first of all. You do a ramp test with them, VO two max, boom, it's over seventy five. Everyone says they have elite athletes in their studies. They don't have elite athletes in the studies. Um, when you look at like the sustainable power outputs, when you look at the the numbers that the, the often participants and studies are doing, these are nowhere near elite athletes. And so the magnitude of improvement that you will see or likely to see in those athletes is much greater than you will ever see in you know true elite athletes. And I think we've gone down a road a little bit where the um, the classification systems around vo2 max actually were vo2 max plus a few other things like training volume level of competition etc and those things have been forgotten and now everyone kind of focuses just on the the vo2 max number and as long as it's you know above 75 everyone says okay like we've got elite athletes um and actually it's not that hard to get to 75 or find people that have vo2 maxes of 75 if you've got good you know university level athletes which is obviously the cohorts where you can you can do a lot of work when you're you know working at a university so we proposed that 
instead of using VO2 max, we use critical power or, or, or critical speed, critical pace as the measure. So yes, it's still you know easily testable in a lab, but it's also testable in in field um, situations. So you know you don't necessarily need a lab to be able to classify your participants really well. Um, it's much more relatable to what we see in you know elite athletes. Like you're never going to find a uh, you know a university level athlete training 500 hours a year that's got a critical power of 6.3 6.4 watts per kilo or something like that you know in cycling it's just if you do then you know give 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 me their number and i'll you know we'll, we'll kind of sign them up straight away basically um so it's just it seems to be a much more robust way of actually getting a good idea quickly of someone's actual performance level in terms of aerobic capacity um and so we proposed it as a as a yeah as an alternative essentially as do you think amateur athletes would benefit from from looking more into into these metrics than they already are i mean a lot of people are using critical power but but then we still have there's a lot of like swift has their ramp test uh, as a as a big marker for setting your ftp but re in reality it's it's basically a, a vo2 max test or it's the way that you test vo2 max so it's not really a measure of sustainable aerobic power so is it is it something that you think at a training level outside of the scientific world it would also be important an important message to to bring home yeah i think so and i think it gives you like it gives you starts to delineate your zones as well in terms of like you know i've spoke about now the the you know the the effect of exercising above critical power versus below critical power. And um, we've seen that in terms of, you know, how it comes through in terms of subsequent performance, et cetera. So I think switching from other metrics to using critical power just gives you a bit more straight away. So it allows you to understand performance, understand physiology, understand if, you know, obviously when you, whenever you estimate critical power, you also get a W prime estimate, which gives you, you can then derive a power duration relationship because you can calculate that. Like, I think it's just a simple test that gives you so much depth as a, as a coach or an athlete that will allow you to control your training really nicely, retest your training really nicely, you know, see if it's worked, et cetera. So I always push people in the, in the direction of critical power or critical pace, critical speed, just because I think it works super nice as an easy test to tell you a, a lot of information quickly. Yeah. And uh, what things should people think about when it comes to actually testing critical power? Uh, for example, with regard to protocol, what durations to choose, uh, testing on the same day versus different days, what would you recommend? Yeah, so this is where, this is where it gets complicated. So this is where it's a little bit of a, a minefield. So the critical power model is applicable in the severe exercise intensity domain. So that's exercise intensities from the critical power upwards until a point where you will reach, still reach VO2 max before you stop exercising. So for most athletes, that happens around the two-minute mark. So if you exercise for two minutes, as hard as you possibly can, you'll probably just about hit VO2 max and then you'll stop and collapse in a heap on the side of the road. That's the domain of validity for the critical power model. So all of our testing needs to fall within that range of intensities. Okay, so the guidelines in the literature are between three and 15 minutes. So if you do multiple tests within that range of intensities, so maybe a three, a five, and a 12, for example, then no matter which way you estimate your critical power, so there's various mathematical ways of of estimating your critical power once you have this data. 
and people get very wrapped up in, okay, which one do I use? Which one's better? Body, body, blah. Actually, if you do good testing, the difference is no matter which mathematical model you use are within a few percent, which is daily variation anyway. So it doesn't really matter which one you use after that. So what I would say is you want multiple durations between, let's say, three minutes and 15 minutes. Maybe with professional athletes, you can go up to 20 because they're a bit fitter and they can sustain power for longer and pace it better and whatever else. But for most people, between three and 15 minutes, ideally three tests. Because if you do two tests, when you plot them on a, on a, on, on a graph, any error in those two tests is going to also just completely knock your mind out. So you've got no kind of room for, for error in terms of if you get your pacing wrong or if you're on a bad day or, or whatever. Else. So ideally three tests, one at three minutes, one at five to eight, something like that, and one 12 minutes. And then you'll have all the data, you know, all the information that you need to, to do, get a good critical power and a w, good W prime estimate. In terms of doing it on one day or on two days, so if you do it on one day, you take out some daily variation, right? So you you know you're obviously slightly better on some days than you are on others, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And if you do it across multiple days, that has an influence. And yeah, maybe you know you, you one of your three days is a slightly bad day. If you do it on one day, you have an influence from one test to the next test to the next test potentially. So this is why we recommend at least forty minutes between between kind of efforts. What I typically do with athletes is do two on the same day. So maybe I do a three and a 12 minute on the same day, 40 minutes in between, super easy, get two maximal values. From that, I can already derive a critical power value. And then on a third, uh, sorry, on a second day, somewhere else, I'll just tell them to go max in a five minute effort. And then I'll get that five minute effort as well, add that into my calculations. And then I've suddenly got a pretty robust critical power and W prime um, estimate. So that's what I would also recommend that other people do. Mm. Um, what I what I do as a coach is uh, for the longest test, I actually use 20 minutes. So I use t- typically t- three minutes, six minutes and 20 minutes. So what is the, and the reason that I do that is, uh, first of all, uh, critical power does vary a bit depending on the test protocols you choose. And with a longer test, especially with amateur athletes that maybe are a bit weaker on the longer durations, you tend to get a slightly lower critical power value but then i feel like the in terms of delineating the, the zones that works quite well uh so that you don't go too hard when you want to train at, in the in the heavy domain but but the other reason is that uh, and one of the main reasons to be honest is that a lot of people have a lot of historical data for 20 minute uh tests because they've done a lot of ftp tests 20 minute ftp tests so so then you get a comparison point but uh yeah i'm in- interested in hearing what are the downsides of of choosing that 20 minute test which is a little bit uh, and i am aware that it's a bit of, a little bit longer than than what is recommended in the scientific literature in that 15 minute range or or shorter so what would you say are the downsides of, of choosing that duration um there's not so many downsides so i actually also use 20 minutes with professional road athletes because mm. like you say i have a lot of historical 20 minute data um the issues that you get are things like how do they have a 20 minute section of road where they can put out power like or is there a 20 minute climb is the descent do you know what i mean all those sorts of issues come in so obviously the shorter the duration just it's a little bit easier to find a 10 minute you know extended period of road where you don't have traffic lights or bitch you have to slow down or whatever else than a 20 minute section of road but in theory, if athletes pace it particularly, you know, if they're good at pacing a 20-minute test, they can get a maximum effort out 
and they've got like you know a good section of road, you can also use a 20-minute test. It's absolutely fine. I think what I would say is you can probably go longer with your tests as the athletes become more experienced and they're at a higher level just because they've done more and more of, of that. So I also use a 20-minute test with the, with the professional athletes I use, but with like amateur athletes, I'd probably say like a 12-minute test works well because you know or something that they've done previously a lot in training you know if they've done 15 minute efforts in training beforehand so they're used to pacing that effort i would maybe use a 15 it doesn't act the great thing is it doesn't matter like you could use a you know you could actually just use a, a fixed distance if you wanted as well just go maximally from the bottom to the top of a climb and as long as it was you know in the 12 to 15 minute range you'd still have a maximal value right and you can just put in you know 14 minutes 36 seconds or whatever the, the climb took you um so yeah, that, there's actually quite a bit of flexibility there. I think what happened is people started putting in like one hour powers. They started putting in like really sub maximal efforts, and that skews all your all your kind of you're outside of the zone of validity of of the model. Um, and so then you start getting problems. And I think you know if you're talking about professional athletes they can sustain critical power for probably 40 minutes something like that on a you know on a good day so 20 minutes you you're absolutely fine in terms of being above the critical power but i think once you're within five percent of it then you're starting to get a little bit hazy so i would say have your test durations somewhere where it's more than 105 percent of what you think the critical power is going to be and then you'll be fine yeah yeah. Uh, what we say for amateur athletes is the expected duration that they can hold critical power 30 minutes or so. Yeah, probably around that. Yeah. So I think 25 to 45 minutes is you, you have quite a range there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So I asked for some listener questions on Instagram. Listeners, you can follow, uh, follow Scientific Triathlon HQ, and I will try to do this uh, as well, starting to do with, with some, some interviews to ask for questions in advance. So I think I have two questions that I put in here for today because we have answered a lot of the durability-related questions already, but there are a couple of uh, questions just generally in terms of the, the power duration curve and critical power. So the first one is from Lee, who is asking, how do you use the power profile to deter determine what areas to focus on? Specifically, do you have rough benchmarks or relationships between cer certain power values to help you determine if you if VO2 max or critical power needs to focus. Yeah, so I'm a big fan of uh, Phil Skiba's model. So the house model, as he as he calls it, where you've got you basically you know you plot your physiological threshold, so your LT1 or VT1 power output, your critical power, your power at VO2 max. And I know that's a little bit dubious in terms of how you measure that, but it still gives you a good idea. And then your sprint power, and you look at the percentage difference between those things. You know, like I think you've have you had Phil on the podcast? Yes, yes, yes. I have a couple of times. Yeah, so um, obviously Phil kind of uh, pushed that model in his in his most recent book. I don't know if it was in the first one, uh, and yeah, that gives you a really good idea of strengths and weaknesses straight away. Like you know, if LT one is ninety five percent of critical power, it's just not going to move up until you move critical power up above it. You know, so I think that's a really nice way of of looking at the relationship between the the physiological thresholds. And then, um, and then using that to determine, okay, what are my training priorities? And obviously, you've got to look at the event as well. You know, it's not no good just making an athlete better. Like, you need to make an athlete better in a way that's also going to have, you know, a beneficial performance uh, effect in races. So, are you are you always then, or well, that's probably uh, evident that you're. It's not always one thing or the other. But do you? 
do you think that in general for most especially because this is triathlon show so i'm gonna ask you to to move hypothetically into the realm of especially amateur triathletes and most of the listeners are maybe focusing on races that take them two hours to to 16 hours from let's say olympic distance to ironman or one hour to 16 hours but let, let's call it olympic distance and upwards um would you focus first on moving the the lower values up if there is room to grow and up, up until what point would you do that for example if you have the lt1 power critical power and you have something like a let's call it a five minute mean max power as a proxy for vo2 max if you if you think that that's reasonable uh can can you say specific benchmarks that is it 95 percent of lt1 and cp because that sounds very high or is it something something else yeah so i think i think the benchmarks are a little bit hazy but i would say anything above uh, let's say 85% LT1 to CP is is high. Mm. And so you're probably not going to move it much higher than that, you know, without moving critical power up first. And so you might want to kind of yeah. focus on that. But if critical power is really, you know, high as a percentage of, of let's say, five-minute power output, actually you probably need to do some some kind of work to move that total capacity, aerobic capacity upwards to move the bottom one upwards, if that makes sense. Mm. I think you also have to look at it in terms of the context of, historical training as well so if you've you know done a big volume block with an athlete and you still think like okay we're only at 70 percent with lt1 of cp but we've done like a huge training block then maybe that's just not the stimulus that that athlete needs and you need to kind of you know maybe mix it up a little bit and actually sometimes maybe moving one of your other components will just will pull the lt1 up with it um so yeah i think it's just a nice visualization tool uh, and actually, quite often, I just you know have an Excel sheet that actually plots it out as a as a little house, and I show athletes that just as just as mm. filters in the book. And then um, you know we talk about that in terms of both contextualize that in terms of the training data across the last six months or twelve months. You know, if you've already got really high volumes, then you know how much are you going to be able to move things by, uh, and also what will come through in terms of performance in races. Yeah, and and just one more, if I can push you for one more benchmark in terms of the critical power as a percentage of whether it's five minutes power or if you want to call it power at VO2 max, do you have a, a benchmark for at what point is critical power so close that you're unlikely to move it further without improving VO2 max? So for that one, I'll look at the ratio of, of CP to W prime um, rather than the, the five minute. Obviously, you could you could back calculate it. Um, yeah. So, you know, if you've got... And, and how... That's one where I would look at more how likely is it that that's going to be a beneficial in a race. You know what I mean? So like if you're if you've got a W prime of twenty five kilojoules and you're an Ironman triathlete, is moving it to thirty really going to be beneficial? Probably not. You're not going to use it at all. You know what I mean in your in your race. But if you're a, a punchy uh, road cyclist, for example, and there's some uphill finishes, yeah, that might be that might be really beneficial. So there, I look at more the ratio of CP to W prime and see what's going to be beneficial from a performance perspective in terms of moving that. All right, yeah. Yeah, I can I can also, uh, because Lee asks uh, about some um, comparing 3-minute and 12-minute power, for example, I actually have a lot of data on that in a spreadsheet myself, so so I can give a, a bit of an answer from my side, and this is all based in, or no, not all of it, but most of the athletes in my database are triathletes. So if I recall correctly, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the the average from pretty relatively advanced well a mixed cohort but i would say intermediate plus uh level age group triathletes was uh, that 12 minute power was around 80 to 81 percent of three minute power but the range there was let's say 70 
70, 74% to 80%, 88%, 72% to 88%, something like that. So 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 I, I felt that at if you're around 80%, you can you can still improve 12 minutes as a uh, compared to three minutes a bit more. But if you're um uh, but if you're approaching that kind of 85% plus or so 12 minutes as three minute power, then you're getting to the boundary, at least in the cohort of data that that I that I have for those those particular test durations. Uh, yeah. I've never actually looked at the ratio of three to twelve myself. I, I always look at the the CPW prime. Yeah, no, that's an interesting. I've never done that myself, so that's certainly something that I'm going to be looking at going forward. Uh, and then the other listener question that I want to uh, to ask here is from Nathan, who's asking, "How can you flatten your power curve? Curve mine is very steep with two thousand watts for five seconds and two hundred sixty watts and nine for ninety minutes, and this is for long distance triathlon." I was going to say that's not a road cyclist because that would actually be a, a very nice profile to have with the, with two thousand watts for for five seconds. Mm. Yeah, and I think you you want to do it by moving the the bottom up as much as possible, right? So, um, you know, it's going to flatten out, but I don't think you should focus on reducing the sprint power. I think that will just come as a natural result of doing more aerobic training. But you just need to move that asymptote and the, the LT one and the, and the CP up. So you're probably looking at volume in that case as well, probably because you've got obviously quite a, a you know a high sprint capacity you could probably get away with doing a lot of sweet spot sort of work as well because you know you you're you've you've got some room to lose if that makes sense in terms of the very high intensity and we might see you know with that sort of work some transition from fast twitch to, to slow twitch fibers or at least a, an improved uh, oxidative capacity of some of the, the fast twitch fibers um so yeah increase your training load some sweet spot work would probably be beneficial in that in that circumstance um increase the volume yeah 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 with the the this is a follow-up question from my side here but uh in, for somebody that is very punchy like this athlete uh do you manipulate the low intensity training in any way for example by um like somebody that has a uh, an 800 or 700 watt five second sprint uh which is where i am <laughs> I, I i tend i tend to see that those kinds of of profiles can do their their low intensity training a bit a bit harder and and it's no problem but sometimes the ones that have a really high capacity to produce short duration power uh they tend to benefit sometimes from for the sustainability of the training to just do the easy training really really easy so so be really is that something that you see as well yeah, definitely. Especially in road cycling, it's, we're interested in maintaining that sprint capacity, right? So we want endurance athletes that can sprint as, you know, mm. as quickly as possible. And so we, we, when we do endurance races, you know, endurance work, because obviously these athletes still need to get through grand tours. We were really careful with that work and the intensity of that work. So we keep it probably, yeah, much easier with the sprinter type athletes just to make sure, just to, minimize the effect on their absolute power outputs you know there's there's pure sprint power outputs as much as possible so we will go easier with those athletes whereas the athletes for example climbers where you know it's it's always funny watching climbers sprint together like you know it's it's a battle of who can hit a thousand watts um those athletes you don't need to worry about hitting the sprint you know affecting the sprint power negatively too much so they can probably ramp it up a little bit because they're also in races do a lot of you know sort of heavy intensity work on climbs and that sort of stuff yeah yeah and i think i think it also um it kind of something that i 
talked with uh, Phil Bellinger about when they have done the the magnetic resonance spectroscopy based uh, muscle fiber typology studies that uh, well it's not exactly the same to be honest they they have more looked at increasing volume and the more the slow twitch type athletes respond well to that whereas the more fast twitch dominant athletes that they tend to get overreached much more easily mm, but yeah. but from a from an anecdotal perspective i, I you can I, I kind of look at it and have seen it a bit in the way also that yeah you, you do your endurance training but with the more uh fast twitch dominant athletes doing it much more easily helps you or helps you avoid that uh, that domain of, of overreaching to, overreaching or overtraining even so yeah, that- yeah. Very, very anecdotal. Very anecdotal, but that's maybe something that I, that I that I would say with when it comes to that adding that volume and that endurance training. Yeah, and I think I think like anecdotal evidence is is still you know it's still evidence, and I think like we, I think the broad strokes of of training prescription can can come from research, and you know that's what I was trying to the point I was trying to make earlier about we weren't looking for specific answers; we were looking for like broad stroke directions that we can point coaches in how it's then applied to the individual athlete athlete there's so many variables in that like we have to use you know anecdotal evidence and we have to use feedback from the athlete about how they feel and how they you know how they they feel they respond to it and what we see in their own data and whatever else like that's the only way we can actually actually apply it so that sort of stuff shouldn't be um shouldn't be ignored yep all right uh that's all the questions that i had do you have any final uh, any final take-home messages or uh conclusions um, I think what I would say is everything that I've spoke about is single session durability. Not hardly any work has been done on day to day durability so far, which is obviously a massive area, especially in road cycling. You know, we have three week long races. Are there training modalities, interventions, etc., that can um, that can improve day to day durability? Would be a really interesting question, and that's. Hopefully, someone else will will pick up that baton with a with their own PhD and, and kind of take it in that direction and look at day to day durability. That'd be super interesting. Um, so I think that's kind of probably the next uh, the next area to explore with, with durability uh, research. Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. All right, so uh, where can listeners follow you? Uh, I'm on Twitter. It's probably the best place. Um, I. Th- I think my Twitter name is Sprag Perform. Performance. Frag yeah. Perform. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, yeah, Twitter's probably the best place to, to follow me. That's where I kind of post the most things and, and stuff. Not as much as I, I did when I was doing my PhD. I've got a little bit less time now with the, with the job, but um, yeah, there's still anything I find interesting goes up on Twitter. So. Yeah, excellent. Well, thank you so much, James, for this. Uh, it's been great to have a chat and I hope to do it again another time. No, thank you very much for having me back. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com. I will link to uh, a lot of the papers, all of the papers that we discussed, except one that is still in review. Uh, but uh, all of the other ones I will have linked to and also to related episodes including uh, James' previous appearance on the podcast as well as his colleagues Peter Leo and Tim Podlogar have both been on before and uh, he also mentioned uh, Philip Skiba and I will link to those episodes as well so if any of those names sound like you haven't heard them on the podcast I recommend going and listen listening to those episodes because they were all really great really insightful interviews. 
Some of my personal takeaways from this interview is uh, number one, uh, not surprising at all, but the relationship between training load and specifically training volume and durability. Uh, There just are no shortcuts here. Just uh, get the work done if you want to be strong at the end of the race and not just at the beginning. Uh, You might be able to uh, fake it a bit more with uh, really good fresh power numbers, but to have really good end of race power numbers, then you just have to get the, the work done. And that's something we discussed when James talked about how some juniors coming through the ranks now have really good fresh power numbers, but uh, but it takes takes years of training to get to to be uh, at the first one across the finish la- line in a long competitive race. Number two is that in terms of the physiological markers and their relationship with durability, uh, it was really interesting that the regression analysis that was done revealed that co- combining VO two max growth efficiency and substrate utilization. Uh, was the best combination of explaining the largest variance uh, in terms of durability. Uh, And uh, like James said, it nicely demonstrates that durability is composed of physiological components of various kinds, including both, uh, let's call it the size of the engine in terms of VO2 max, but also the mechanical and metabolic efficiency of the engine. So Trading in a holistic way, focusing on different aspects of physiology, also nicely targets durability. Uh, No need to put all your eggs in one basket. And uh, finally, I think we had a really nice discussion around critical power and critical speed. And uh, my opinion here is pretty strong, I would say, but I think it's still very underappreciated among uh, the masses in, in general media and general training lore. Uh, not just in science obviously the viewpoint publication that james was involved in that led to the discussion was more from a scientific point of view that critical power critical speed is a better marker of performance physiology than vo2 max which uh, i completely agree with and i just want to extend that uh, viewpoint to to training and uh, and especially in in amateurs i think that there is still a, a very large tendency to focus on ftp and especially for triathlete, I think that it we would benefit much, much more from using critical power, critical speed, because our races are so long and steady oftentimes that to get any kind of mean max power or pace data from them is just, uh, you're not going to get that. You're never doing maximal efforts really in, in racing. The, the duration makes it maximal at the end, but but it's not maximal for the durations that you're doing. For cyclists, however, that do race, then you might be able to, you you don't necessarily need to do formal testing if that's something that you dislike, because if you race, you you might get a lot of good mean max power data from, from racing efforts and you end up knowing automatically which durations and which kinds of efforts you're good at and which ones you're not so good at. So there I can see that, okay, maybe maybe it is slightly less necessary to do formal critical power testing if you anyway can no roughly speaking roughly where your threshold is you, you don't need to do critical power testing for that necessarily in my opinion but the profiling aspect of critical power is what i really think makes it uh, the best the best marker the best most important test that we can do as athletes compared to other kind of threshold threshold tests uh, but yeah again cyclists maybe there is slightly less need even though i think it's obviously still really good for most cyclists to do but for triathletes i just don't think we we do those sorts of efforts neither in training or racing to really be able to get a, a an accurate insight into our where we are strong and how our different how our performance across different durations relate 
uh, without doing that kind of formal testing. And and I think so again, that's the profiling that is really really valuable. Even if you could do a, if you say that well, I can get a, an accurate threshold estimate by doing something longer like an hour hour of power for example rather than a typical 20 minute test that is true but but you still lack the profiling you still only have one data point so there you have it that's why i think that most athletes would benefit from using critical power or critical speed as their uh, let's call it threshold marker and and their way of profiling themselves as athletes now uh, a quick housekeeping item by the time of recording this we are just finalizing the recruitment process of uh, adding a new coach to the scientific triathlon team when you hear this episode uh, that will be completed the new coach will be taking on athletes already so we now have a better availability of coaching slots which has been challenging the last few months with uh, not so much availability and uh, I will make a more official announcement once everything is finalized, but I just want to put it out there that uh, although I'm not yet saying who they are and what their name is, uh, we do now have a new, very skilled, very experienced coach across all race distances and performance level that is taking on athletes who I am really, really excited to work alongside. So if you're looking for a new coach, now would be a great time to reach out and uh, schedule a discovery call. Of course, remember as well that if coaching is out of your budget, we do have other options. We have customized plan plans and we have ready-made plans and we also have consultations. So uh, you can uh, reach out and uh, we can have a discussion around which options best suit you and your goals and your budget. All of the information about all of this can, of course, also be fi- found on scientifictriathlon.com. In the next episode of uh, the podcast, uh, we have uh, Björn Gesman uh, returning to the show. He's the coach of Kat Matthews, Patrick Lange, Jan Stratman, and uh, I'm probably forgetting somebody, uh, some some really good world-class athlete. Uh, but uh, I wanted to ask uh, anybody that has questions for Björn, listener questions that they want answered on the podcast, send them to me via email, michael at scientifictriathlon.com. Uh, And I will also put up an Instagram story soon asking for questions so you can send them in there uh, or just DM me. But to be honest, uh, there is a risk that they disappear there. Uh, Email is the best way for sure to reach me in any kind of question. Uh, So so I recommend emailing me. But any questions for Bjorn, uh, then you can send them to me and I will try to, uh, to ask some listener questions on the show like I did here with James. Also coming up is an interview with uh, Rune Talsnes, who you probably maybe have not heard of, but he is uh, a researcher and coach specializing in cross-country skiing. So we will discuss that and uh, get some different kinds of insights into endurance training from from the perspective of cross-country skiing, but also tackling some, some interesting general endurance training questions that he has studied in his research. That's it for today. Big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelhydration.com. If you're looking for high-quality, practical, and tasty fueling and hydration products, make sure to try Precision Fuel Hydration. There are a range of options from drink mix to gels to choose, so you can easily find your personal favorite. And don't forget to take 15% off your first order with the code TTS24. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Tune Trainer is a great tool to have in your toolbox to improve your technique and power, to target specific aspects of your stroke, and to maintain consistency when you don't have time to get to the pool you can try donate risk-free for up to 30 days and get 20 percent off your first order on sanitarycom forward slash tts thank you as always for listening keep training smart and keep loving triathlon <laughs>